Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. And it is almost June. If you're listening to this, it is either the last day of May or the beginning of June. And as you all know, June is Dysphagia Awareness Month. So I'm really excited about the uh, the guests that I'm going to have on this month because they all have different views of dysphagia and what it means to them and how it's impacted their life. And um, I'm just, I'm really excited for you all to hear these conversations. And I would also just like to say in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, my book, so you're having trouble swallowing, the ebook version is completely free on Amazon, uh, June 1st through the 5th. So if you are hearing this June 1st through the 5th, head over to Amazon and grab the ebook for free. If you'd like the hard copy, it is only $5.99, which is as cheap as they will let us do it for. So <laughs> um, I, my my whole vision is just to get this book into as many hands as possible this month. Um, it was such a joy for me to write, and it was it's something I'm really proud of, and I know that it's helped a lot of people with dysphagia. So um, yeah, if you're interested in grabbing that for free, go right ahead, and we will get into this week's episode. Today's guest is Yvonne McLaren. She's an author and founder of GAG, Eating with Head and Neck Cancer, and the No Feeding Tubes podcast. She's a courageous individual who has faced head and neck cancer with determination and strength. She has become a passionate food advocate for others battling the disease, sharing her journey, and offering support to those in similar situations. Yvonne wrote and developed the Mind Food Body Program, which is specifically designed to assist others with dysphagia and a peg and a peg tube transition back to oral eating. Yvonne has written her own transition journey in Easy Follow, Easy Swallow, and a self-help guide to eating your best food life following head and neck cancer treatment, both available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So Yvonne was working as an executive in the non-for-profit sector and has a love for travel. She's lived in Sydney, Melbourne, Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur, and for a few months in Vietnam when she was diagnosed with oropharyngeal cancer, tonsil cancer, in November 2018. She went on to have a third of her tongue removed, both tonsils, 30 lymph nodes, and 30 chemoradiotherapy sessions. She also had a PEG tube for 15 months. Yvonne is a contributor to the publication From Treatment to Table for Student Dietitians at Griffith University of Queensland, a participant in Soup for the Soul online cooking workshop for Head and Neck Cancer Australia, and the Swallowing and Quality of Life Study with the University of Technology in Sydney. Yvonne is a qualified chef, a soup savant, an avid hiker, yogi, and international traveler. She also shamelessly promotes her culinary framework and program to help others get off their feeding tube. Her goal is to bridge the gap between SLPs, dietitians, and home kitchens with lived experience, and as a passionate foodie who promotes the mental health importance of food and its social implications. And I just love this conversation with Yvonne so much. I, I met her actually, met, I say met in air quotes over Instagram, and we've just had some wonderful conversations back and forth. And so I'm so happy to have her on the podcast because I just, you know, loved hearing her, her lived experience and everything that she's been through and everything that she looks forward to doing for patients with dysphagia in the future. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. To the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, 
My goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. All right. Good morning, Yvonne. Good morning, Teresa. It's morning for you. It's afternoon for me. You're in Australia. I'm here in the U.S., but that's what we were just talking before I hit record just about the beauty of that, how I can be in the U.S., you can be in Australia, and we can sort of talk about this dysphagia, this this whole thing that occurred to you, and we'll get into the whole thing, and I'm really excited to hear your story. So uh, if you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Yes. Um, Teresa, yes, it's just as well I'm a, an early morning person, I think. But uh, uh, look, yes, I thank you for inviting me on. I really became interested in dysphagia as a um, I was just saying to you that I didn't even know that that was a word. I didn't know that speech pathologists uh, existed. Uh, it was certainly all very new to me until um, I was rather rudely interrupted with head and neck cancer. And uh, I had just relocated to um, Ho Chi Minh City to Vietnam when I discovered a very sore throat that just wouldn't go away. So... I raced back to Australia to discover that I had a um, former cell carcinoma on my left tonsil, um, which was why I had a very sore throat. Uh, I was putting it down to stress. And um, from there, my journey began, really, into the wonderful world of dysphagia and speech-language pathology. Uh, <laughs> and whether I wanted to know about it or not, I didn't have... Um, any way of not uh, discovering a that area of you know, medical expertise, and uh, I didn't actually swallow or eat. Well, swallow, eat uh, orally for about fifteen, eighteen months, I think it was in the end. So I became very familiar with peg tube feeding, trismus, and, you know, and a, a range of things that came as a result of having uh, head and neck cancer. All right. I could talk about this forever, Teresa. This was <laughs> just goes on and on and on. Um, I mean, and look, I, I know your audience is predominantly speech pathologists, and it was interesting that my my very first, I had two or three speech pathologists in the end, but my very first speech pathologist, she sort of said to me, "Oh, you do realise, Yvonne, that." Um, you could be using this peg tube for the rest of your life. And I, I can remember the fear that I had and experienced. Um, you know, she was talking to a, a person or a patient that fainted when she had her ears pierced. So this whole process of hospitalisation and medical, anything was completely foreign to me. And I'd very much gone from an environment of public speaking, international travel, um, talking and presenting events for industry bodies to not eating, not talking, not doing anything. So, yeah, it was a very, very scary time for me and a very different time for me uh, as a human, I guess. So, yeah, you know, I found it very challenging for sure. 
Yeah, well, I'd love to, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on and, and, you know, just a lot of the feedback that I get from a lot of these episodes is, you know, just really adding the patient perspective into what we do. And, you know, everything we do is about evidence-based practice, which is, you know, the evidence, the research that's out there, sort of our clinical experience and, and just different experiences that we've had, but also the patient experience and, you know, what we can learn from you. And, you know, I know you've been really outspoken with everything that's happened to you. And I, yeah. I just wanted to have you on because I know that you'll definitely be able to leave some valuable information for SLPs that are listening. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think let's, let's start there. You know, what, what is something about your journey that you wish that, you know, speech pathologists would, would know or would consider? I found the first couple of years very challenging in, uh, I, I think that the common, conversation that continues to happen and I always say it's behind closed doors head and neck and I'm only talking in reference or talking about head and neck cancer patients uh I I don't go down the other swallowing aspects for anybody else because obviously uh, speech pathologists are highly trained for that this is just my experience as a a qualified chef a foodie someone who had food and wine as a very large part of their career, uh, eating, drinking, talking. That's what I was paid to do. I mean, someone had to do it. Why not me? So I very much come from that aspect and I very much come from a patient, um, based perspective as opposed to, um, you know, the, the disease perspective, if you like. And that, that I discovered was, uh, common in the entire multidisciplinary team that were involved in my care or our care of head and neck cancer patients. It's very disease-focused, uh, I found. And I'm, I'm noticing as I develop my material and the resources that I develop to try and bridge that communication gap between those teams and the patients, I notice that it's slowly becoming a little bit better. I noticed someone the other day, for example, mentioned yoga. Uh, finally, uh, I've been a yoga practitioner some 40-odd years now, So, uh, and that was one thing that got me through the um, head and neck cancer treatment perspective, particularly around radiation, wearing that mask that pins you to a board, uh, I know lots of people had lots of issues around breathing, anxiety, that mask in general, because you you really go from a person on the street, on the pavement, to someone who's being locked to a table underneath a mask, and you can feel your eyelashes literally fluttering against that mask that's up against your face. So finally I heard someone mention yoga, and I know now, I'm now four years out from treatment, that that yoga, that stretching, that particular process of stretching neck and shoulders every single day is the only way that I can speak um, relatively clearly now. I've had to teach myself how to speak again uh, and breathe. Uh, and and swallow and in that swallowing, so those three things become very much uh, a single unit for well for me, and I'm pretty sure for a lot of other head and neck cancer patients that it's a it's a bit of a, a, a joke amongst us that we can't eat, breathe, and talk at the same time. It's just uh, something that we used to take for granted, you know, and you'd know that. Yeah. yeah. So there are things like that that I just I picked up on. Um, 
around the brutality of the treatment. I mean, yes, I'm alive, but my goodness, there were times when I thought, you know, really, is this really worth this treatment? Um, you know, and it, it is one of the most depressing cancer treatments of all, I think. Um, uh, if I'm reading correct, well, certainly for me, it was not great. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, my whole challenge and whole flag waving is about ensuring that it, you know, there is a person underneath all that and that ability not to swallow and eat and eat socially is a massive, massive part of the treatment process, I think. Yeah. But I, and I think, you know, for me, so my, my son has feeding and swallowing issues, not in the cancer realm at all, but it's, you know, I've, o- I've always done this work before I even had him. And that's just when I had him and realized that meals were never going to be the same as long as he's sitting at the table with us. It's just a huge social aspect that people that haven't experienced it don't even think twice about, you know, you just think everybody pulls up to the table and everybody can just eat what's all going around. And it's just, it's awful. It's gut wrenching when, when it just doesn't go that way. So, no. so thank you for. It's called commensality. Uh, and there was a paper that came out from, um, I think it was the Limerick University from memory. I don't quote me on that, but this word commensality where, you know, eating is such a big part of our culture and, we do take it for granted and, and whether you've had head or neck cancer or you just can't swallow generally, as you say, uh, it's, it's just uh, wrenching emotionally, I think. And it just takes us away from mainstream and the people that are with the people that can't swallow. Uh, you know, it's as difficult for them as you would attest, you know. Mm. Yeah. Did you have any any physical therapy or any other therapies that, you know, helped work on your neck and things like that as well? I know you were saying that you you got really into yoga, but did you have any other any other therapies? No. Uh oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I did. Uh so just by way of background, I had uh the tumor removed, a third of the base of my tongue, both tonsils, a neck dissection which had 30 lymph nodes. Uh, and I had chemo and radiotherapy. So, uh, lymphedema is another thing I didn't know existed. Uh, that was quite prevalent in terms of I had internal lymphedema as well as external, which I, I'm to understand isn't uncommon. Mm-hmm. But I had to start researching, uh, what do I do about this? How do I, you know, it made sense to me having some interest in lymph drainage, etc. If you've got 30 of those lymph nodes missing, then that indicates to me that you've got some drainage issues, particularly from your head, your neck, your chest, your shoulders. Uh, so I actually had cold laser treatment, which I found here in my hometown in South Australia. Wasn't well known. There was only one place doing it here, and I had to travel for that. And I believe it helped me enormously, and I think it got me through that early part of lymphedema very quick well quicker than I would have without it and I I think I just did everything to try and compensate for that and that and that was self-massage every day having said this I had to discover this myself there wasn't anyone telling me that this was what you should be doing so as I went through this process Teresa I documented everything that I did to get me from 
ground zero to where I am today. Uh, and by documenting, I wrote it, I wrote a program, I filmed myself, I, I watched myself progress through um, private videos that I took of myself. I practiced my speech. I pre practiced presenting back to camera again, watching my own mouth, watching how I've formed words and letters. I still struggle with L, L. <laughs> I still, I just bit myself then. So I have to, you know, I've had to really, uh, and I, I'm, I'm to understand, obviously, that there are people out there that do this as a profession, but if you live on a farm regionally in Australia or you can't access the big cities or you can't get to XYZ person, you know, you don't necessarily have access to that. So I ended up writing everything down that I did and then I formatted it in a staged process as to how I tackled it. One of the biggest things I found was um, being overwhelmed yeah. uh, with treatment, with people that were looking at me, poking at me. I was on opioids. I was on every painkiller drug known to man. I was a walking zombie, and it's really difficult to uh, stay in contact with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, being very mindful about what's happening within your own body. Uh, and as someone who is um, an organiser, um, it's in my DNA to be organised, to have things. What happens when plan A doesn't go to spec? We go to plan B. And if that doesn't work, then what do we do? Um, and I'm one of those people that just by nature does that and has some way of dealing with things as they come up. So I documented my entire journey, which is now what you see in my podcasts and my writing and my blogs and my books and those sorts of things. And it's just a way to help people with the overwhelm. I felt very alone. I felt very uh, removed from my care, like my medical care. I've always been someone who's watched my diet, my exercise, my thoughts, what I do, how I operate. All of that was taken away from me. And this was a way for me to get back some management of myself, I think, and, and feeling as though I had some control over what was happening to me. And I think food, for me, uh, particularly when the food aspect was taken from me and I was sitting there literally pouring uh, artificial formula into a peg tube, it was like that was my lowest point. It yeah. was like, well, if this is going to be life, then, you know, I don't know about this. Uh, and I didn't stay there very long because that's not my nature. I thought, well, I've got to make a choice here. I've got some decisions to make. How's my food life going to look now going forward? But the longer I didn't swallow, the longer I didn't eat, the more removed I became from food. So that was my first step to get back to reconnecting with food. Now, in saying that, I have a kitchen. I work from home. I've always worked from home, even pre-COVID. Uh, so that wasn't new to me working from home. Uh, and I have clients and people all over the world so this isn't really that new to me and I have my own kitchen here which for me thankfully uh, I have access to my own food on a regular basis but I had a kitchen here full of chef knives and stock pots and 
you know, it just wasn't being used. I wasn't even boiling a kettle to make a cup of tea or have coffee or I couldn't swallow that liquid for starters. Uh, I couldn't stand the taste of tea. Now, I've got about 15 teapots, so that will give you an indication of how much tea I used to drink to nothing. You know, cue the crickets, there was nothing. No cutting up onions, no curry making, no beautiful smell, nothing. So I had to very much find my way back. And I think it's incredibly overwhelming, particularly when you go into head and neck cancer, notwithstanding the chemotherapy and the toxicities that happen as a result of radiation and uh, fibroids inside your throat and people continue to give you <laughs> tablets. Um, here, swallow these. Mm. Uh, no. No, won't be doing that. Um, and you're not allowed to crush the. Um, see, I'm going off on a tangent, so draw me back this <laughs> time you need to. Crushing things. Oh, you can't crush that particular drug. Oh, okay, well, then how am I going to ingest it? So, in the end, uh, my tube feeder, it fell out on its own, mostly because I used to run with it and I tried everything to exercise with it. I tried um, pregnancy girdles, tapes, everything. Eventually it just fell out and I didn't put it back in. I, I had to take the ball by the horns and, and run with what I had. But uh, I used my peg tube mostly for uh, water. I was very conscious of not getting dehydrated and, and medication. Uh, that was the last two bastions for me. Once I'd gotten through the medication, Process and I was very conscious of getting off medication too. I think, uh, well, not I think, I know that once I'd gotten rid of that peg tube, that was me having dealt with cancer. Yeah. I was through the worst of it and I knew I had that mental picture in my mind that once that peg had gone, once I'd started to learn to chew and eat, and swallow enough food, I was that was a milestone for me. And I talk about milestones in the program that I wrote, and this is something that I don't think we do enough, is celebrate those small milestones. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them for me was drinking a cup of tea that tasted at least reasonable. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm to assume that there are head and neck cancer speech pathologist experts who specialise in head and neck cancer. Uh, and, of course, we get hit with not just the, the swallowing but the fibroids and the taste loss and the dry mouth and the, everything else that goes with it. Going back to a question about what other things I tried, I had acupuncture. Okay. I, had, I had dry needling and I continue to do so for my neck. And I'm to understand that it doesn't work for everybody. It certainly worked for me. Um, and at the moment, my saliva production's pretty good. Uh, in fact, I'm probably producing more than I need at the moment, so I'm just trying to work out how to live with that. <clears throat> but, um, you know, these these auxiliary treatments were kind of reluctantly said to me. And, you know, at that point, oh, just bloody wanted anything, any idea about anything. Yeah. 
And depending on where you come from and what country you live in and how liberal the multidisciplinary teams are and what they think about certain things, you know, it's all. And when you're in this place of despair, and it is despair, it's got the highest suicide rate of any cancer in the world, I'm to believe, last time I looked at some figures. And I totally understand why that is, because it just removes you from society um, in general, because you can't eat, breathe and talk. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I was very open to hearing about any kind of alternative treatment that would come uh, as a result of the things that had happened to me. And swallowing, from a speech pathologist's point of view, one of the most useful things and I, I had to keep pushing for. Do you pronounce it barium or barium tests? Um, yeah, I had barium. to keep pushing barium. I had yeah. to keep pushing to have those tests done because I wanted to know what was happening with my swallow. I needed a um, a visual representation in my head as to what was actually going on here, so that I kind of knew what I had to do to get food down and it may not sound silly to your audience but it does to some of my audience about uh you know I used to jump on my left leg not my right leg and put my head to the side to get certain medication down and that was the only way I could do it was if I jumped and kind of <laughs> like a complete idiot in my kitchen but um you know there were just things that if I had a visual uh, model of what was going on. So I actually used to film. I had this young man at my local hospital and I filmed that cut in half model of he was showing me what was happening and what normally happens with a normal swallow and what happens with your cheeks and your jaw and your uh, esophagus. You know, it was fascinating. And I took this little clip, Teresa, of what he was telling me. And it's one of the most viewed clips on my YouTube channel yeah. and it's this little and it's like, who knew and those models are fantastic and I think what you as a profession learn I don't know why we're not telling the patients some of that mm -hmm. maybe you forget or but god it's really useful information it's like itsy yeah and I was talking about itsy and I discovered itsy on my own and I thought, why on earth aren't we telling people about Etsy? Yeah. You can take that home and cook in your kitchen with it. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a lot of things that I found and discovered that I just felt that should have been conveyed to us. And I think I know what happens. There's such a shortage of time and staff and so many people that need the assistance of speech pathologists. Mm -hmm. That I, I think it becomes a time and a money thing, yeah. you know, and a checklist thing. Uh, I was reading recently the um, Spa Speech Pathology Australia. You know, there's a workforce numbers issue at the moment, and I think there's a whole advocacy paper around that that they're looking at how many speech pathologists there are compared to how many patients that need to be seen. I mean, you know, you can see it. It's there in front of you as to how much time people can spend and the um, number of people that are available to talk to patients. So hence, uh, sorry, go on. Mm. No, go ahead. I, I have two questions for you. 
Did they offer you a fees at all, which is like the endoscope in the nose, or was it just the barium, the x-ray test? Explain the other one to me. Too. Yeah, so so the fees is a is an endoscope, so it's just a little small camera that goes through the nose. Oh yeah, yeah, I have that every three minutes. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, my sur- my surgeon does that. Yes, um, but I think he's looking for reoccurrence as much as anything. Yeah. yeah, so so the doctor would use it for a different utility than the SLP. So that's what I didn't know if the SLP had done it while you were doing swallowing exercises and things like that. Oh, uh, I think once when I pushed the point. Uh, yes, I think I did have it done, and I watched it on the TV monitor yeah. as yeah. they were doing it. Yes, I did. They did, and I made them do it so that I knew yeah. what was going on. Uh, and that's because, um, and look, excuse my lack of using the right terminology, but we could see uh, she must have given me milk. Does that sound right? Um, and there was just a little bit of overspill into my airways. Yep. Uh, which was what was causing me my issues back then. So, yes, that has been done, and, yes, I watched that, and, yes, it made sense to me. And I think I made the comment that the, the best way for me to swallow was when I actually bent over and I discovered that picking up my cat's bowls and I had a mouthful of something, and I bent over and swallowed and I went, Oh my goodness, that was actually felt like a normal swallow yeah. to me. And that doesn't happen very often. Um, I, I do that every once a year now, I think. So yes, I know that there was some techniques about uh, turning my head to the side that had been uh, worked on, radiated and surgically, you know, um, had my surgery on. Uh, but look, you know, it, for me, it really comes down to weather, temperature. And, you know, I notice here as we go into winter, and I'm only learning this as the years go on, but as the weather changes and the temperature changes, my swallow uh, abilities change and what I can manage changes. Um, so my diet has to change accordingly. I've just walked from Portugal to Spain on the Camino and there was one thing, oh, two things. I can't eat ice cream. Please stop telling us to eat ice cream because it doesn't work. And I'm not the only one with that. Uh, and I'm not saying that to anyone in particular. But the other thing I noticed on this walk when I was doing the Camino was uh, along the way they make uh, farmers leave pilgrim food stops for people. And one of my biggest challenges was how I was going to do this five-week walk without having my own food. Snacks are impossible. Trail mix, nuts, sultan. Can't eat any of that. Um, I thought, God, what am I going to eat anyway? I worked it out en route. Uh, but one thing was uh, watermelon. The farmers used to leave us cut watermelon, and I thought oh, I'd be able to manage watermelon. No. Yeah. So the horses got that, so I used to turf it over the fence to the horses on the way. But I don't know why I went to watermelon, but temperature, uh, yeah, changes in temperature very much affect what I can and can't eat. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I didn't never thought of it from that aspect, but, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Just thinking, let's let's switch gears a little bit because I would love to hear about everything you've created because of this. I know that was why I really, you know, wanted to hear more from you because I think it's just so inspiring when people have been through 
Helen back and just you, you know, create something to help others so that, you know, they don't yeah. feel lonely. So I'd love to hear about your book. I'd love to hear more about your program and yeah, take it away. I, I sometimes still get very emotional about this. So excuse me. Yeah, I, yeah. It, it just hits me when I least expect it. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think when I was sitting, uh, I'd first come out of surgery and I was in intensive care for two weeks and I can recall learning about speech pathology and my surgeon came in and said, oh, your speech is coming in. And I remember looking at Andrew and going, what do you mean, by what's a speechy? And so I learned all the lingo whilst I was in intensive care and I listened to the nurses. <laughs> so it's amazing what you can pick up when you listen to nurses at, um, you know, intensive care counter. Whilst I was sitting there, I remember thinking to myself, um, she's coming in to see me with thickened water. Now, from a novice's point of view, bearing in mind, I'd gone from Saigon, one of the busiest, most food-orientated cities in the world, to intensive care within the space of about a month. Mm-hmm. When I'd left Vietnam and flown back to Australia, they got me in super quick. I was I was gone far, very much stage four and beyond, and um, I kind of went from this vibrant food environment to walking around with my um, bag of food on a trolley stick thing, you know. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, how do people deal with this? How do you navigate this whole process of not swallowing? What does this really mean to me? So I had a lot of time to sit there and really think about the people who loved food. And I know there are people out there who don't get into food as much as I do. I know there are people out there who don't cook, who don't like cooking, who would rather not see a kitchen, but I was the opposite. I loved kitchens. I loved all of that. You know, experimenting with different cuisines, um, understanding basic nutrition from a micro and a macro perspective. My mother was a bit before her time, so she was heavily into what we would now call dietitian land back in the 70s. So I grew up knowing and understanding what we now see as normal common practice around diet making sure you've got the right kind of nutrients coming in. And I thought if you don't have that understanding innately and you do not know how to manipulate food uh, and if you come from a particular area, and I noticed this dis- difference between USA and Australia in that, and I hope I'm not offending anyone here, but in Australia we have a very multicultural, particularly where I come from, food culture because we just have, uh, you know, Indian, Italian, Sri Lankan, um, you know, Moroccan. We have all these different food that is just normal for us and our markets, fresh food markets, have fresh produce that feed into those types of cuisines. So for me, it was a no-brainer. But I do notice in the States, particularly in regional areas where that food's not necessarily available, um, people don't have access to that type of food and they don't eat that as a normal diet because that's not the way they grew up or brought up. So, and, and I go there because I understand that 
manipulating food and the biggest joy for me was discovering that Indian food back in my early days was the food that I could go to and I finally got that texture and flavour profile back in my mouth after some 15 months of nothing in my mouth and that was a big step for me and that was a that was my driver to write down everything that I discovered about food profiling and flavour and after chemotherapy and everything tasting like wet cardboard and not having crunch and I did everything against the flow. I was told don't eat chilli, don't eat vinegar, don't eat citric, don't eat spice, don't eat this, don't eat that. And I went, mm, yeah, okay. Um, so I took it home and I'm not, and I preface this by saying I, I was aware that I could be putting myself in danger, but okay, I'm going anyway. Um, and I tried these things and you know, the first thing I ever ate was salt and vinegar chips or crisps, I think they're called in the UK. And my surgeon looked at me and said, you actually ate a bag of chips? I said, yep. I said, it took me bloody ever, but I ate them. And that was the thing. That's how I learned about transitional food. No one told me about transitional foods. I thought, well, hang on, chips? Why? So I've just put it together and... Papadums in Indian cuisine, beautiful transitional food. Prawn crackers, Chinese food, beautiful transitional food. So I just started creating all these little programs around how I uh, introduced food back into my mouth in the safest way uh, and, and what worked for me and using yogurts um, and using dals and pulses and those types of cuisines that have all that sauce that go with them and that's how I learned to eat bread. I discovered that I could eat sourdough but not other bread. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, and now I've discovered another bread just very recently. Um, it's called paratha bread, I think it's called, and it's um, a flat bread. So it's kind of, and we're all different with head and neck cancer. Um, I noticed there's some similarities in things like ice cream's not a big go-to because of the melt point. There are others, the watermelon, who knew, salad, forget it. So all those beautiful things that I used to love eating um, are no longer available to me. But I, I just thought it was really important to fill in all those gaps for people from your speech to your surgeon to your oncologist to your radiologist um, to your head and neck cancer nurses to you've got all these people running around doing all these things for you but there are all these gaps that are missing in your food journey and that's really what prompted me to write the program and my books about helping People fill in those gaps and you, you are not going to know what those gaps are until you've been through this. Mm. And I thought, you know, I've got skills. And this, sorry, getting back to my original answer was sitting in the hospital. I've come from a background of managing and running membership-based organisations worldwide. And that means, um, you know, in, well, for Australia's example, there's the um, Speech Pathologist Australia 
Uh, you'd have a similar thing in, in the States, similar in the UK. So membership-based organisations, I've come from running those and their events and their continuing education events. So I thought, well, I can put all that knowledge and information and package it and then help, hopefully, people bridge that communication gap between patients and the teams is really where I came from, I guess. Yeah, awesome. So talk to me about your program. Is So is it a membership site program or is it just sort of like a walk you through step-by-step type thing? Yeah, um, it's... Um, I've kind of changed it around a bit because I I wanted it available for patients and for practitioners to go through in their own time and their own pace. So I ended up talking to camera like this and I take the individual through five modules and that's the Mind, Food, Body and Future model and there's, 20, there's five lessons within each model. And it's all the things that I learnt uh, – around um, how I had to use my mind, my food, and my body to get back to eating my best food life and all the little areas that I engage within my own journey to help others. And I, I basically take you through that journey uh, on camera like a tutorial with I've done notes and PowerPoints and I take you through that and then I leave residual course notes, if you like, at the end of each lesson so that you can move through that. Originally, I was doing this uh, one-on-one with people, and then it occurred to me that this is a bigger project than one-on-one, so I moved it to an online resource so that people could access it from wherever they like in the world, and they can download it and go through it. And At the moment, I'm just trying to work out how to uh, turn it into different languages. I've had it. I've had a request to have it done in French and done in German. Um, and as good as my German is and uh, my Japanese, it's not good enough for me yeah. to record it. Uh, so I'm just trying to work out how to do it in different languages at the moment. But it's it's an online uh, resource that people can access um, from wherever they happen to awesome. be. And you, you know, take your time going through it. And if you're like me and you're a patient and you've been on opioids, you just <laughs> occasionally want to go back and revisit yeah, something that yeah. you may not have paid attention to. So, yeah. You know, we, we have SLPs that would share that. We have, you know, patients that, that listen to this that would love to access that too. So that's really what I... Oh, and, and I've tr- tried to make it as less complicated as I can so that it's just... I've gotten rid of my website, uh, so everything is just under my bio link, and and there's there's a resource. But yes, I'm pretty sure I sent it to you, Teresa. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Yvonne. It's been so you know inspiring and just wonderful hearing your whole story. And like I said, I'm just always so inspired by hearing from people that have been through hell and back, and have you know come out on the other side and created things, and just want to you know pass along what they've learned. So thank you. Thank you so much. Is there any any final thoughts you'd like to share with, you know, other patients or speech pathologists? Look, I think uh, from a for speech pathologist point of view, it's, it's a tough one. Um, I, I mean, I take my hat off to anybody in this profession for starters, but it's such an individual, and, and you'd know this, it's just a bespoke situation for people. And uh, I think having more people 
like me, talk about their own individual stories can only add to the learning curve, if you like, of, of speeches generally. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's an, an amazing profession uh, now that I know about it. And, uh, yeah, look, anything I can do to help anybody with particular questions, uh, I try to make myself available to help people if they've got specific one-on-one questions that they'd like to talk to someone about. But, no, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. Yeah, thank you, Yvonne, and keep keep doing what you're doing. I, you know, I I, I love social media for this aspect to find people that are that are doing what they're doing. So keep at it. Uh, I will just say, Teresa, on the first of June, I'm relaunching my podcast, Gag. Yeah. Uh, the the No Feeding Tube show will still be there, but I'm sort of ramping it up a bit now to go to um, specifically around discussion around issues and reports and papers that come out and talking to those as a patient as opposed to a medical practitioner. So that's kind of where we're going as of 1st of June. Awesome. I love it. I can't wait, to, can't wait to tune in. So thank you so much for sharing that, Yvonne. No worries. Thank you. Thanks, Teresa. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week.